Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Greetings. I'm Robert Lee Kilpatrick, the chair of the Health and Medicine member-led forum here at the Commonwealth Club of California. And I'd like to welcome you to another one of our interesting programs. You know, 15 months ago, uh, the Commonwealth Club had to transition to a digital platform because of COVID-19. And one of the things that became apparent to all of us during that time was that there were dramatic uh, inequalities in health outcomes, access to health provision, access to hospitals and treatments. And so it occurred to us that we should put a program together on this topic, which we've done. It's part of our Healthy Society series. And today's topic is Health Equity 101, Transforming the Health of the Nation. And we have a fabulous group of speakers today who uh, are going to talk to us about health equity and, and what it is, what it looks like uh, from different perspectives. So I'll briefly introduce our speakers. We have uh, Dr. Anand Shah, uh, MD, who is Vice President of Social Health at uh, Kaiser Permanente. And we have Dr. Uh, Abala- Noah Abalata, MD, who is the founder and CEO, sorry, sorry. <laughs> of Roots Community Health Center in the East Bay. And we have uh, Sorel Roberson, who is uh, completing his PhD at UC Berkeley and is, in fact, the founding uh, CEO of a social uh, media company focused on this topic called Jubilee. So the way we'd like to start this program is to show a short four-minute video that has been provided to us by Roots Community Clinics that puts a human face on the question of what is health equity. And after we show you that uh, video, which I think is quite moving, we'll begin our discussion. So let's go. I was born and raised in West Oakland, California. I grew up in a family where my uncles, my dad, and everyone else was drug dealers. So I took after them. That's how I survived. That's how I fed my family. Roots really prioritizes the needs of people in our society who are the most marginalized. It's a band of clinics that was put together to help to relieve the disparities amongst the poor. And we have almost 10,000, 11,000 patients now. And we provide a voice for the community, especially for those who normally historically do not have a voice. When we looked at the data, Health disparities, especially for African Americans, were so severe and actually worsening. And I really felt that I wanted to try it in a different way. And so that's really why I started Roots. We're everywhere in the community. We're in the jail, we're under the freeway, we're in the streets. It's not just about a doctor writing a prescription, it's about having access to food and having a safe place to live. One of the core pieces is our training program, and our factor is Clean 360. We take members of my community who are willing and wanting to move forward in their own lives, and we clean them up 360 degrees. I was one of the first guys out of the soap factory. <laughs> he told me, man, if you could cook dope, you could cook soap. This is how I emancipate our men and our women from our community. What brought me to the planet is I couldn't get a job. I needed help. I needed somebody to believe in me and to see my worth and my skills and to see that I, you know, that I can perform at a job. This is how you move communities. You empower them to help themselves. I'm the manager of the health navigators. I look over all the health navigators that work for Roots. They're the ones that establish the trust and the relationships and help people navigate what are pretty complicated systems. They deal with a lot of people that's living inside cars, inside tents, and in parks. I think we're able to connect with people who otherwise are not connecting anywhere, giving people a place to come that they can trust and feel comfortable and get the services that they need. We make everybody feel loved when they come and walk through those doors. That's the whole goal. Everybody needs someone. I mean, they showed me love when I came, and that's why I'm still here today. The people that we end up helping, they're the ones who end up being the newest 
and strongest members of our community, and they're the real, the real advocates. Seeing your kids happy, man, you know what I mean? You know, you know, man, they will keep me around to you, like daddy. That, that, that. Man, that's a damn good feeling, bro. That's a damn good feeling. And the black community, we're affected by a little bit more than poverty because this systematic racism that goes on within our country is not going anywhere anytime soon. Roots needs to be here for the community. We now have multiple sites throughout Oakland and also in South Bay. It's clear to me that Roots needs to be here uh, for generations to come. So we're not going anywhere. We are of the community, we're by the community, we're working for the community, and we're here to stay. Well, I find that a, a deeply um, moving video, and I want to thank you, Dr. Avalata, from the uh, center of my heart for all that you and your team do. Uh, it seems to me appropriate that you might kick off our discussion today, since you've kindly provided that video. Um, our audience uh, wants to learn more about what this thing is, what is health equity, uh, what is its relationship to structural inequality and social determinants of health? So let's go. Please tell us what you've learned through what you do. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I think what we've learned is, is equity is really about centering the needs of people who have been the most marginalized from our systems, which we I think we're understanding more and more. Uh, I think Roots was founded with the understanding that many of our structures uh, do produce uh, inequities and maintain those inequities and disparities. And so it's important for us to look at those outcomes and see what, it, what needs to be done in order to correct them. And what we found just in our work on the ground is that the way to do that is to ask questions, um, to dig deeper uh, when you see that there's a disparity uh, and really center the needs of the people who are um, the most marginalized from those systems, who are the least likely to just come walking through the door and asking for exactly what they need. And by doing that, we're really able to get at the heart of what those uh, disparities really are and then move to correct them. So, so Dr. Shaw, how do you uh, view this uh, from your personal as well as the perspective of, of Kaiser Permanente? Yeah, thanks, Robbie. And first, I just want to say thanks for having me and sort of feel honored to be here, especially after the inspiring example that Dr. Abuelada, um sets with the Roots Clinic. And I, I think of health equity really simply as allowing people to meet and achieve their full potential and health should enable that and not be a barrier, right? And what we know, as Dr. Abuelada was sort of expressing, is that there are systems and structures in place that often get in the way of individuals and communities, access to food, healthy places to exercise, safety, adequate economic opportunities, places of employment. And so at KP, we've been really investing in not um, our communities where we exist as an employer, the anchor institution, but also increasingly making connections and resources available for the patients and members we serve. So excited to sort of engage in this conversation today. Thank you. You know, um, Sorrel, uh, you and I met through uh, Berkeley Skydeck because your company, Jubilee, is part of that program. And because I've gotten to know you, I've learned a little bit more about what you term the cult cultural competency in healthcare. And, and in a way, I suppose your company is beginning to explode the ideas that we might have that one size fits all for healthcare for people. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So like you mentioned, thank you. First of all, thank you for having me. I'm happy to join the conversation today. Um, so when I think about cultural competency, I really do think along the lines of, you know, cultural sensitivity and humility, right? So focusing more on the individual, right? And their specific contexts, right? So in essence, 
you know, t making sure that we're taking into account the individual factors that come into play um, that also influence and have an effect on an individual's health outcomes and being able to address, you know, the individual holistically, right? So we're, we're not simply, you know, or, you know, just treating the symptoms, um, but we're also thinking about, you know, more upstream as far as prevention, right? And preventing and helping to ameliorate the need for services. So thinking, you know, along the lines of, you know, undoing some of the relics in the system that, you know, have contribute to, to preventing access to equitable healthcare, whether that's housing or food insecurity, right? That oftentimes then result in the need for, or either mental health services or, or you know, um, or healthcare services down the road. Yeah. So um, when I was watching that video, which which started with um, this uh, man named Jesse King, I, I was thinking to myself, uh, all of us in this program have something in common with Jesse King, which is that that we're flesh and blood, and and we're people. We're just individual people. We're part of families and communities. And then I was considering this term structural, you know, structural inequality, structural racism, structural. So can you comment uh, on the relationship between, you know, the individual, uh, say an individual patient at Kaiser Permanente or an individual who walks in the door at Roots and, and how they navigate and how you navigate this the structural impediments to optimization for people? Because that sounds like that's at the heart of this problem. What do you say, yeah. um, Dr. Avalada? Well, I'll take it back to sort of um, even before founding roots and even take it back even further. If you look back, um, I like to look at maps because maps really help to show sort of where, uh, where we have disparities, where we have, and now we're all used to seeing, you know, COVID maps, right? But if you look at a map of Oakland from the 1930s, you can see redlining. And redlining is one of those structures that was put in place that systematically really locked people out of economic opportunities. And if I look at a map today that shows me um, diabetes rates or asthma rates or premature death rates or school suspension or probation and parole, um, any number of factors that we now sort of call social determinants of health, those same exact areas of Oakland light up, the same area of East Oakland, which is actually where we purposely put roots, right, sort of at the heart of where these uh, inequities lie. And so we can see how some of the structures that are, that are put into place, like banks not loaning money and, and really locking people out of economic opportunity, how that has then led to a multitude of other issues. You have pollution, you have you know, environmental issues, and you have then uh, poverty, and you have health issues that result from that. So all of these things are absolutely intertwined. As you said, we're human beings. We are you know, a product of our environment, of our upbringing, of our surroundings, of the quality of our schools, uh, the manner in which we are policed, um, and the manner in which we receive services. And so all of these things continue to accumulate and impact not only individual, but also generationally. And so you see some of the same cycles of poverty, trauma, violence, and so forth that then sort of also are generational issues that become even that much more difficult to overcome. What do you think, uh, Dr. Shaw? Yeah, no, I, I love the example and the notion of maps is really powerful. If you look at where asthma rates are greatest in America, you often see a really great relationship or a great, it's not the right word, really strong relationship between asthma rates and where there are highways. And if you look at where subsidized low-income housing has often been put in that same proximity. So is it a surprise that someone who grows up next to highways and pollution is likely to have greater rates of asthma and challenges breathing and, and exacerbation? That's a real manifestation. And we'll see those in individuals in our ERs, in our clinics, we'll treat them. But if you don't think about how you address that relationship between connection to pollution and where you reside is only going to perpetuate. Um, so uh, I guess just plus one to everything that Dr. Abolado said. 
So, um, you know, the program today is, is about health equity, but from what I've heard so far, it, it sounds like it's a story about wealth and poverty. And it sounds like it's even deeper than that, that would you, would you agree that health equity is, is really the tip of an iceberg? It's, it's the part that we see above the water because underneath is, is the larger piece, which is social and economic inequality. Would, would that be a fair statement or is that too extreme, would you say? Anyone want to chime in on that one? Yeah, I don't think that's too extreme at all. It's the end product, really, of a number of uh, factors and structures that are that have been put in place, um, you know, since the since the beginning of of this country, really. Um, and then we we continue to see sort of the predictable, unfortunately, the predictable outputs. So you know, as as health providers, I mean, you you know, if someone comes in with a problem, your job is to to help them heal whether it's uh, psychological, in your case, Sorrel, as a psychologist, or it's physical, or it's both, or it's all of it. But uh, putting bandages on things uh, doesn't necessarily solve the deeper, more fundamental problem. How, how can we be thinking about health equity and structural obstacles in a creative, positive, and practical way? I mean, what should our audience be thinking about, and what should our audience be doing to help change this? Any thoughts on that one? Well, I think you hit it on the head earlier when you said it's not a one-size-fits-all approach, right? So it's really going to depend what some of those factors are. But in short, I'll say that's how Roots Community Health Center ended up with a soap factory. I don't think a lot of people might <laughs> draw, you know, think that that would be a natural outgrowth. But when we got down to it and we realized that really what was what was keeping most of our community from being healthy was poverty itself and that we needed to do something to intervene. And we took a look at our landscape and realized that there that even in a down economy, there is a number of uh, factories and manufacturing jobs are a place where there's pathways um, to go into more advanced types of careers mm-hmm. and that it was a great entry point uh, for people who had been completely marginalized from the workforce and I have seen it absolutely transform health outcomes for people. I mean, blood pressure under control, uh, controlling depression uh, and pain and things of that nature. And so I think really tailoring our interventions to you know, what we're seeing and where we're trying to go. So Sorrel, in, in um, our, our discussions, uh, you've, uh, I think, educated me to understand that there are Although we're all human beings and that we have more in common than we, that that than that which divides us, there are certain specificities. So you've convinced me that certain ethnic groups, uh, African Americans, for example, respond more favorably, say in cases where there might be an African American medical practitioner. So there's some racial component to that. You've convinced me that there's um, a gender aspect. You know that. Uh, in fact, most of the women I know, prefer, including my own wife, prefer to have a female doctor uh, gynecologist. Uh, and in the case of the cultural side, for example, in with with Muslim women, it's not part of their culture to disrobe, you know, in front of a man. So, so you convinced me that there are cultural differences, and I wonder how all of this fits into this bigger question of of health equity uh, from your point of view. Right. Right. So. The cultural pieces are one small piece of, you know, the the puzzle here, right? So we know that, you know, about one in five Americans suffer or will suffer from, you know, a mental illness at some point in their lives. But when we disaggregate that data by race and ethnicity, African-Americans, for example, 20% more likely to experience serious mental health issues, right? Yet we're the least likely to seek out treatment for various reasons, one in 11 Latinx Americans with a mental health disorder reach out to mental health professionals, right, um, when they're in need. So in addition to the cultural pieces, and oftentimes, uh, especially um, as a, you know, as a school psychologist myself, and also, you know, working at a clinic as well, oftentimes, you know, having the familiarity of someone who shares some of the backgrounds as, you know, uh, uh, as the client or the patient, right, that helps you know, get them through the door, right? It helps to remove some of the hesitation that they may have, especially, you know, 
um, you know, when it comes to accessing and seeking out mental health services due to the stigma um, and other reasons um, historically that have, you know, prevented folks from um, accessing or reaching out for the those supports. But again, it's such a, you know, one piece to the puzzle. I think in addition to the cultural pieces, there are other solutions and interventions that we, you know, that I think about both on an individual level and on a macro level when it comes to, I think it starts with self-awareness, right, for individuals, understanding and becoming more conscious of our own implicit biases, right, um, and then thinking about our, the people that we serve in terms of individuation versus categorization, right? Being compassionately curious about the people that we serve, right? Um, working other strategies may include counter stereotyping. And then on, on a much more macro level, right? We also have to think about addressing, um, you know, the problems that make people sick in the first place, right? Since we in essence, send them back into the environments that made them sick after they received treatment. So, you know, linking them to social services. I oftentimes advocate for um, community schools, right, where we're providing wraparound services um, for students and for families as well. So similar to the model that Dr. Um, that Dr. Oblato um, has implemented with Roots Clinic, right, integrating that those wraparound services and social services in addition to treatment in the within the systems and within the institutions that you know whether it's work school um etc that people live in every day so um you know dr shaw i know at kaiser permanente there's a strong view of the importance of uh, environment and how it affects you know health outcomes and in fact how environment affects behavior because people who you know, we're raised in, in certain disadvantaged backgrounds, are not taught uh, certain things that would help them to grow and prosper. And I wonder, as Kaiser continues to commit to community health initiatives, uh, and I know you've invested money in uh, housing, public housing, can you talk a little bit about, again, that, that environmental or that structural aspect of this story? Uh, rather than focusing just on individuals, how can we begin to really change um, the context that, that people live in? Yeah, no. Well, I, I, I think until we do so, we're not going to see the sort of sustainable change that we all are looking for. But I, I think the sort of individual stories and impact are really important to help us make the case for structural change and in using investment. So, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll I'll give a, actually one example from uh, when I trained in Philadelphia. I had a sort of talented colleague there that showed that when individuals were walking down the street in their neighborhood, if they walked down an abandoned lot versus if they walked by a green space, their heart rate would actually go down because of their stress levels go down. And that's intuitive. I think we can all appreciate that. But sometimes folks wonder, well, why are we focusing as a health system on things outside of our walls, outside of our connection? It's, it's because there's this intrinsic connection to health. And when you look at that on a map, as, as Dr. Arbolato was saying, then we could say there, this is not isolated to one block or one individual, but there's actually patterns. And it allows us to say, you know, in this community, there's inadequate housing for members that we're serving and we need to come together. Um, so for example, as you referenced, um, KP invested, I think $200 million that's done then been amplified by other organizations um, around the Bay to sort of increase affordable housing um, and change the nature, but no one organization can do this alone. And that's why I was trying to say that it really is connected. We have a privilege as an organization that, serves individuals and communities to do our best by them, but then also to use their stories and, our, and their data um, to tell a larger story to say, where is there inadequate investment um, and use our dollars, but then use others to come to the table, um, which is, I think, part of the role of, of healthcare systems here is to bring others into the conversation um, and to bring other dollars into the conversation while using our own unique voice. Yeah. Do you, do you think that at, at, at its heart, this whole 
situation uh, that we find ourselves in really revolves around trying to create equal opportunity for everybody. I mean, the truth is that, you know, not everybody has the same amount of material wealth. Not everybody has the same IQ. Not everybody can run a four minute mile, but that's different from equal access to opportunities, whether it's education, you know, whether it's employment, whether it's, um, you know, access to healthcare. Do you think that the country and the politicians, regardless of their political party, should be thinking more about how to transform the country away from its current kind of divided state into one where equal opportunity for all is, is, is seriously pursued? Is, is that part of this story that we should be talking about? Maybe I'll, I'll start and just to say, I absolutely think that this notion of equal opportunity is key. And what we're lifting up, what I heard Sorrell say is the way you get equal opportunity is not by you know equal treatment, right? We People are coming from different places and we have to provide different supports to create equal opportunities. And to say that we found that that resonates across geographies, rural, urban, left, right, um, this notion of providing health-related equal opportunities. Indiana, which is, um, you know, considered a more conservative state, has a, an office of healthy opportunities um, that's really focused on these same issues, just like states that are traditionally more blue. So I, I don't think that this is a political issue, though, you know, sometimes it can be framed as such. Does anyone have a thought on that one? Yeah, I think, you know, for me, I think every one of us has a role in this. And so I like the example from KP around, you know, how they're thinking about spending their resources. One of the one of the reasons uh, or the uh, strategies around Roots having Clean 360, uh, where we make something that actually is available, you know, for purchasing is because we really do advocate for socially responsible procurement so that you know we can go to hospitals or universities or other anchor institutions and say you know purchase if you purchase from us then you are not only buying the the, the widget the thing you need to buy anyway and the thing you're going to spend your money on anyway but you are also actually uh, supporting the community you're keeping people you know out of your ERs your jails your psychiatric hospitals because we're working more upstream like Sorrel said so I think you know, every one of us um, has power over what we purchase for ourselves individually, but also, you know, especially within larger institutions, whether that is government. In fact, our first thing was we want the jails to buy our soap because most of the people that end up getting trained with us, um, you know, actually have a background and that's why they couldn't get into the workforce. That's why they were kept out of the workforce. We actually felt that that model was so um beneficial to our organization, to walking the walk around self-sustainability, even for us as an organization, because all of the revenue goes back into the nonprofit. We purchased a second social enterprise, which is a sign factory called Hamilton Broadway Signs. And because we purchased commercial signs, again, we're going out and saying, hey, if you're in this community, you know, don't buy your signs from, you know, another state or buy your soap from, you know, a large manufacturer in another state because it's a few cents cheaper. Really think about the impact of your dollar and, and of how you spend your dollar. And so I do think equal opportunity for all sounds wonderful. I might be, uh, I don't know, you know, it's a bit of my pay grade in terms of how that really gets to happen. But the good news is I think that, you know, there is a lot of room to do some, some redistribution and to rethink about, you know, each of our uh, responsibility in that. Well, when you when you talk about economic opportunity, I was pretty impressed when uh, Jesse King said, "If you uh, he said if you can cook the dope, you can cook the soap." Uh, that that's very, and you know, in other words, being able to kind of move people, you know, away from you know corrosive practices into productive practices, healthier practices, but actually using the skill sets that they actually have. So I thought that little piece was was good. Um, you know, I was just thinking about what it's like to be a doctor in a clinic and, you know, people coming in uh, for treatment. And, and imagine a scenario where you have incredibly unsafe roads. And so people are constantly smashing into each other and they're smashing into the houses. 
and, and you're having an endless stream of, of bloodied patients coming into your ER, is the solution to the problem to put more doctors uh, into the ER or is the solution to fix the road? And, and I, I think uh, no matter how hard uh, the three of you work and the teams that you supervise, unless we can deal with some of these structural issues, it seems to me, uh, as the population grows, it'll just get worse. There will just be more people and more people suffering and struggling. So what, maybe it's above all of our pay grades, but nevertheless, we're American citizens and we have a voice and we have a vote. How should we be thinking about this uh, actively? You know, we've got an audience that's watching us right now, and they're looking for guidance from us. Um, can you each of you give us some some practical steps that you think would really make a positive difference? And I think this program is is our contribution. You know, we are making a difference right now by talking about this. So, Sorrel. You're the youngest one of all of us, okay? Uh-oh, ageism. Anyway, would you please give us some insight as someone who's soon going to get a PhD from the University of California, Berkeley, who works in a school, who is a practicing psychologist, and who's the CEO of a company founded. Looking ahead, you know, to the next 20 years, what, what should we be doing now to change these outcomes? Sure, sure. So I think it, you know, it does go back to both some some of those individual level interventions and strategies that I talked about earlier, as well as the more macro policy systemic level interventions, right? So just thinking about in terms of ensuring that, you know, every patient receives high quality care, but we can't rely on, you know, healthcare or the medical care alone um, won't solve, you know, this problem. Again, this is a one piece of a much larger you know, a symptom of a larger social problem that we have. So, you know, we have to begin to focus on what drives health when we think about the opportunities to be healthy in the places where people spend time. So ensuring every child has a life where they can grow up and thrive, right, where they can go to school without early childhood adversity and stress, which is often associated with chronic poverty, right? We also know that there's an association between education and health. So ensuring academic success, right, that which can in return um, improve socioeconomic status, right, which is often then associated with better health outcomes. So increasing the number of mental health providers in schools as well, right, expanding access to safe places to exercise, right, particularly in Black and brown neighborhoods, right, um, access to fresh food. So really creating a culture of good health where the healthy choice really becomes the easy choice for people, right? And then I think also in terms of Again, on the more macro level, expanding access to EAP, right, employee assistance program that include mental health services for all employees, right? So moving more upstream in terms of closing those economic and opportunity gaps to reduce, you know, some of the need to treat mental illness later on down the road. And also leveraging technology, using some of the tools that we have, you know, at our disposal currently to also help to, you know, simplify this process. You know, that's what we've been working on with Jubilee. Um, to simplify the process of, you know, finding culturally responsive healthcare providers, right? And then also, I think there's a pipeline, you know, issue as well as far as getting, you know, folks of color um, into and through um, medical schools and um, graduate schools, right? Um, in addition to, you know, some of the larger um, systemic macro level policy issues that I talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. Any comments on that? Maybe, I, I mean, I really appreciate it. Oh, um, I was just going to say quickly that I really appreciate the domino sort of impacts that um, Sorrell sort of alluded to. And, and maybe just to add that, uh, you know, as individuals, we all have the opportunity to raise the consciousness and the conversation around these issues. And, and that can be something that we all can do um, in, in very sort of, tangible ways, um, you know, we found that actually individuals, 90% of individuals want, you know, their healthcare providers to ask about their social contact and to talk about it, but only 16% of those actually do generally. So there's a huge gap that, that can be addressed. And the, the last thing I'll say is um, on this piece is 
we know that the social pact in America has changed over time as people are farther from their families and friends, as jobs and schools take them to different parts of the countries. And so just lending lending a hand to, to your neighbor and your community at large, I think is an opportunity. It feels small when we talk about these huge systemic issues, but I I think it, it, it there are ripple effects and, and we we can do what what's in each of our sort of control to help raise the specter of this conversation. Um, so thanks for letting me chime in, Robbie. Sorry. Sorry. Well, you know, in the uh, in the 19th and early 20th century, uh, a real uh, social challenge and a political challenge was to create uh, state funded uh, schools. Uh, K through 12, you know, in, in the olden days, you know, wealthy people had private tutors and the masses uh, didn't have schooling. And, and you know, Dewey and others, you know, the idea was that as the country was industrializing, uh, we needed, you know, reasonably educated workers who were disciplined, et cetera. So let's create some schools and let's train people, you know, to turn up on time and to read and write and these kinds of things. And what at one time was considered to be absurd became the norm. And, and now it's, it's normal. Now it's true. There are inequalities between certain kinds of schools. But nevertheless, um, you know, I went to state funded K through 12 and I did OK. And I think, you know, a lot of people do. So now we're in a situation in the 21st century where we. So in other words, there was universal access to, to education uh, that was free. And here we are in the 21st century, and we're talking about health inequalities and structural obstacles, and yet the United States continues not to have a universal health care system. So I wonder, you know, is, is, is universal access to health care, and I'm not asking you to comment on a particular approach, but, you know, in theory, is it, is it something that we should be seriously considering now as a part of, of infrastructure building for the country, namely that every person in the United States can go see a doctor when they need to. What are, what's your thoughts on that? I'm going to start with Dr. Abelotta because she has an awful lot of patients. Absolutely. I mean, the Affordable Care Act was a real game changer in our community. We know that not all states have, have expanded Medicaid, but, uh, you know, prior to that, uh, you know, many of the many of the people that uh, that I would see that we would see really never had access to ongoing health care at all unless they were incarcerated. And so that is a real uh, sad, it's a real sad statement that really to this day, that's the only place in this country you are guaranteed access to health care. So that needs to absolutely change. There's no question in my mind about that. But I think we have to go beyond that because I think we really have to acknowledge that our healthcare system has truly earned the mistrust of huge swaths of our population. And that will take time to overcome. And unfortunately, over the past year, some of that has actually exacerbated, I think, due to a number of re reasons. So one of the starting points uh, in my mind is really looking at our healthcare workforce. What is what who's in it? Who do we allow in it? Um, what are the barriers to entry? There are still uh, you know, places where you can't even draw blood if you had a misdemeanor 20 years ago. These kind of barriers are keeping it so that our healthcare workforce simply does not reflect the population we say we're worried about or that we say that we want to serve. So I think there's a number of barriers that we still need to remove, even, you know, with as it exists now, um, as we look to expand that to everyone. Thoughts from anybody else on this one? I agree. I think, you know, when we talk about health equity, it really does require undoing a lot of the relics of the system, right, to make health care, mental health care and um, um, health care in general more effective and efficacious for everyone. Right. So making sure that everyone has access to their basic needs and resources you know, that they need to thrive. Right. So accessibility for all, regardless of whether where they live, right, access to transportation, the cost of the service or whether or not they have insurance or race or ethnicity should be the, the end goal. It seems to me that uh, the, the notion of linking health insurance to employment, uh, you know, that's kind of, a, you know, not every country in the world does that. So you link it to employment and then COVID-19 hits and then large numbers of people lose their jobs in the middle of COVID-19 and then they get sick but because they lost their job, they don't have insurance. So, you know, what about the idea of, of decoupling 
health health access from employment? Because it seems to me that if you're employed or you're not, that's a health inequality right there. And if you're uh, highly compensated versus uh, an hourly worker at a fast food restaurant that doesn't give you health insurance, that's health inequity there too. It seems to me that we, we could actually sit down, you know, with a computer or, or in my time, a blackboard, and you could like write down, oh, here are the obstacles. They're so obvious and they're largely economic. I mean, c- couldn't, we, couldn't we actually ask the question, what needs to happen to create a healthier population in America? You know, part of the, you know, part of the, the what, what I referred to the mistrust, I mean, part of what that has to do with is that the first question you get asked when you go to seek healthcare is about your insurance. It's not where does it hurt? It's not what's going on. How did we get here? It's who's paying for it. And so, so you see now in the community that, that we're serving and, and trying to deploy this vaccine, a lot of people don't trust it because it's free, because they've never interacted with a health system that didn't first ask, how are you paying for it? So that, so there goes the skepticism. So that's very ironic when we're here trying to address a health crisis and there's a lack of trust because it's free. So I think that whole paradigm really needs to shift where the first question we ask um, shouldn't be who's paying for it. Yeah. Or, I really appreciate this comment and conversation, right? I mean, really the whole paradigm and culture needs to change, right? The healthcare system has been around health care. It's been reactive, wait till someone's ill and treat them as opposed to re- really creating a culture of health and well-being. And, and that is a different way of thinking. And access is one piece of that. It is required, but it it's not the, the whole um, it, you know, enchiladas, um, it, because it requires a, just a different way of interacting. And, and that's why I think conversations like this one and others are so important to change the way we think about our health and engage um, and, and really even take health into our communities as opposed to be a place where folks come and seek health um, resources in institutions. I think there's an opportunity to flip that paradigm, um, you know, and as Cyril mentioned, technology and other things I think will be helpful in, in changing that paradigm and, and bringing that into folks' homes and communities as opposed to um, into traditional brick and mortar institutions. So something that's beginning to emerge on this screen for me is that I'm getting some questions from the audience now. And I was kind of processing them and thinking about, you know, how to uh, talk about them. And, and they really fall into, into two categories. So one category is very much focused on specific uh, cultural and racial identities. So I've got questions about uh, the, the poor health outcomes of Native Americans on reservations, who in some cases don't even have uh, electricity or indoor plumbing. I have some specific questions about African Americans in Oakland. I've got other questions around Hispanic people immigrants in the Salinas Valley, this kind of thing. So so that's one group, which is uh, there are a whole bunch of groups of people uh, that uh, are marginalized in different ways. And then the other group of questions are, are around um, the things that all human beings need um, to be healthy. So, so it's, they're, they're kind of a, a, a dichotomy. So, you know, we all have hearts, we all have brains, we all sleep, we all eat. But then there are specific groups that historically, for all sorts of reasons, have not had access to uh, optimum conditions. How can we really begin to think and plan around healthcare provision that can accommodate both components? That is to say, you know, Every person in the country can see a doctor if they need to, or a health practitioner. But as Sorrell points out, certain groups have some specific needs. Is that even possible? Or should we cherry pick and kind of work on the things we think that we can deal with? Or do we need a fundamental overhaul? What do you think about that? It's a lot. There's a lot in that question. Well, I'm I'm in the fundamental overhaul 
camp, which is why I started, why I started a health center because I, you know, I didn't think that was probably going to happen. <laughs> the, the fundamental overhaul might not happen in my lifetime, but I think, um, you know, changes can happen. What gets paid for is part of the issue, right? It is sick care, like Dr. Shah, you know, alluded to it more than it is um, thinking about working upstream and trying to prevent things and have a healthier population at large. And so as long as we have a system that um, it's very difficult to get reimbursed until the disease happens, until we're treating it, until we're prescribing medications. I mean, this is a fundamental issue, not only with physical health, um, but even more in the, on the mental health side, where our largest uh, mental health facilities in this, in this country are all prisons. So we need to relook at things of, of that nature, right, if we want to get to a place of any kind of health. Uh, but I think the question about, um, you know, groups of people with specific needs, for me, always goes back to, uh, you know, healthcare institutions really taking responsibility for that. And that can look different in different places. For some health institutions, it might mean what I said about making sure all their procurement is socially responsible and they're creating more jobs within their community. For others, it means hiring a workforce that truly looks like the people that they're serving, uh, making sure there's linguistic capacity and that there's cultural congruency. And so I think being responsible for our outcomes is so important because I think we can't keep saying, well, there's disparities. Well, you know, African-Americans have, you know, more difficult to control blood pressure. That's not going to really be acceptable to just take that and say, you know, we're, that's it. We're treating everyone the same. Part of equity is taking responsibility for those outcomes and saying, okay, for this particular population, we are going to have to invest more. It may cost more. We are going to have to fund towards equity. So this isn't something that is going to come easily. This is a work in progress. And so I think to all of those subgroups that you mentioned, the answer is look at the data, take responsibility for the outcomes and fund towards equitable outcomes. Well, you know, um, all three of you in different ways uh, are doing work that is to be commended. There's no doubt about it that the three of you are committed to uh, increasing health equity. And, and that's why I'm so glad that you came onto this program. Let's imagine a scenario where the four of us go visit with people in power. So we're going to have half an hour with the president, the vice president, the governor of California, you know, the surgeon general, you know, 10 people who are in a position to influence uh, big changes. What, what would you say to them? How should they be thinking practically about creating healthier communities in the United States of America? And, and be bold. Yeah, I think on a policy and a macro level, definitely implementing universal health care. Um, investing in and advocating for early childhood, I think, is also another really important lever that we can, you know, further support, increase funding for, provide, you know, expand access to for folks who do not currently have access to that, right? So just, again, thinking about how to address these problems, right, um, that make people sick in the first place, um, linking people, you know, with social services. Education is a powerful intervention in and of itself, right, and that it prepares people for successful employment, for social mobility, right, financial stability, right, to ensure that their basic needs are met. Right. In addition to recruiting, training more diverse workforces in healthcare that reflects the demographics of the overall population in our country. So education would be a, a very important uh, driver from your perspective, Sorrell. I think so. Yeah. What about you, uh, Dr. Shaw? Yeah, it's such a big question, uh, but. Well, I, I think my mind, I, I love what Sorrell said, but I think my mind also goes to the places where um, government, you know, really starting with centering this notion of equity. And I think actually the Biden administration has done a good job um, actually really bringing light to the issue around equity and health equity um, specifically. But there's also a number of institutions um, in the federal government that don't often work together. And I don't think that's by design, but by, by happenstance. So the Department of Veteran Affairs and Housing and Urban Development and HHS often have rules that are conflicting and get in each other's ways that actually don't allow for this true collaboration that's needed. 
um, and, and even partnering with states. So I think my ask would be, you know, a little bit more pragmatic in sort of saying, how can we allow for more cross-cutting initiatives that allow us to center equity and equitable outcomes? I mean, and in, in some ways, almost saying, you know, the health outcomes that we're sort of looking for and achieving, if we don't, if we're not achieving equity or equitable outcomes, then, you know, do they really count? And, and if you sort of start there with the data, as uh, Dr. Apovado said, and then you organize around it, I think that could be really powerful. So thanks for letting us dream big for, <laughs> for 30 seconds. Well, um, one of the things that I personally experienced with, with Kaiser Permanente, so I, I declare that I'm a member of Kaiser Permanente, by the way, uh, is that there's a real focus towards uh, prevention there, which I have not found in, uh, elsewhere. And so if I go back to that analogy of, the, of the, the poor transportation system and the endless wrecks and people coming in needing to be repaired, it seems to me that fixing the, the roads w- is, is an important part of the solution rather than just patching people. So Kaiser Permanente, I think, is committed to more and more and more prevention and helping people stay healthy ra- rather than you know, endlessly patching us up when we, we get sick. And, and I wonder if, if the three of you have views about that, that part of the health equity story is, is going to be to simply try and reduce uh, sickness which is a complex thing to do, and it involves a lot of moving parts. But you, you either want to do that as an organization or you, or you don't. So since I referred to Kaiser Permanente first, how about we hear from Kaiser Permanente first? Well, we appreciate having you as a member and, and the, uh, the plug. But I, I will say we're fortunate to be organized in a way that allows us to focus on prevention. And what I mean by that is we're a delivery system and an insurance company. Um, so it, it really, we're incentivized to have healthier populations, which I think gets back to some of the other conversations of how do you organize? But it, yes, that is how we, uh, we really do want to move upstream and continue to do so. So we're both proud of what we've done, but want to move further. That's why we have a role called Social Health that was created and a, a national leader around equity, inclusion, diversity, et cetera. Um, I, I think I, I quip as an ER doc, you know, my job is to, you know, put ourselves out of business, right? Which is, you know, a little bit facetious, but it is the hope, right? So yeah, thanks. So before the other two answer, I want to clarify a point. Is it true that Kaiser Permanente is a single payer system? You're the payer and the provider. We are the payer and provider. Now, we also serve the greater community where we reside, but the vast majority of the patients we serve are our members. Um, so we are an integrated system that provides insurance and um, health care. It looks a little different across our footprint. Some places we are the hospitals and the outpatient sort of providers, and some in other communities we're just the outpatient and not the hospitals, but it is all integrated as you described, right? So, so, um, so, Dr. Abelotta, how how do you think about uh, prevention at um, at your centers, or or is that part of it, or do you are you so busy just treating people that that's prevention's not given emphasis? And prevention is huge, and actually working far upstream is huge for us. We feel like our most downstream work, which is like providing medical care in the encampments or you know, in, in the in the highest place of need is really, it's not only to provide that critical service, but it's to inform what needs to be done upstream and to do it. So that's a big part of our ethos. And we see ourselves sort of stepping into that gap between sort of a public health population and community-based sort of uh, outlook and the individual. So when I think about prevention, of course, we're thinking about uh, prenatal care and we're thinking about, you know, making sure that babies get all the things that they need. Uh, but when we think about it on the community level, that means intervening and preventing uh, adverse events in childhood, like things, traumas, and things that we know will lead to poor outcomes as adults if we don't intervene and deal with it. So when you asked about, you know, dreaming big, I loved Dr. Shaw's answer about, you know, about removing some of these silos and really integrating more. Because if you think about something like uh, preventing adverse childhood experiences, 
like witnessing violence, when you think about community violence, that involves all the pieces, like what Sorrel mentioned about early childhood and about schools, but it's also about economics and what people are doing to survive. It's also about, you know, about all, all those different services, about how we're policed, how things are responded to, whether a mental health crisis results in you getting help or does it result in you going to jail? So I think all of these things, you know, at the community level, when we talk about uh, population health, we have to be thinking about the, the structures and the environments that, we're, that we are, uh, that our patients live in. And so we can do, you know, we're not going to program and service and, you know, get, get out of this in the exam room. Um, essentially, we're going to have to really zoom up and, and be much broader in our thinking and really about the community around us and all of the factors that, that play into it. So when I think of prevention, it's not only on the individual level, but it really is working upstream at the community level. Thank you. So it's hard to believe, but we're down almost to the wire here for this program. It's been nearly an hour. And so I'm going to ask each of you uh, for some final remarks. I'm going to begin with Sorrel and then uh, Dr. Shaw and then Dr. Avalada, because we started with your video. So Sorrel, um, the program today was actually billed as um, Health Equity 101, which simply meant, you know, a beginner's course, uh, transforming health, the health of our nation. So for this audience, for all of us here listening and who will watch the uh, recording later, what, what are your, you know, most important points and takeaways uh, for this topic? What should we be thinking about as an audience and give us at least one thing that we could possibly do, please? Yeah, sure. I think, you know, the, the main takeaway here or one of the big takeaways here is that, you know, this won't be solved overnight or by a silver bullet that it really does require, you know, the efforts and the political will around the resources across so many different sectors and people and institutions. Right. So it does require a fundamental overhaul um, in a lot of the institutions and the systems that you know we currently have in place. Um, but as individuals, I think it all starts with self-awareness, right? Understanding and being more conscious of our own um, individual roles, you know, that we play um, in, in this process and finding ways to contribute to one, the collective understanding, um, right? That having, you know, these biases, right, um, doesn't necessarily mean that you're a bad person, but it means your biases reflect the culture and the beliefs that you were socialized to believe. So how can you as an individual, how can we all, you know, contribute to unlearning and undoing and becoming more collectively aware of some of those um, biases that we've been socialized to, um, to think um, in the way that we think about people, right? So that we can all, you know, play an active role in undoing it and being more aware. Thank you. Dr. Shaw, final comments. Yeah, no, thank you again. Um, well, I would say that the equal opportunity for health that you described requires different levels of investment. And I want to make that sort of clear. And as Farrell said, we have to go upstream. I'd also say that this is not a unique or isolated situation. You know, 68% of Americans expressed having had a social risk in the past year that could sort of connect to their health. So it's, it's amongst all of us. Um, and so don't be afraid to ask questions of, of your community and of your, of your health system um, if you need additional assistance. Well, thank you. And uh, Dr. Avalada, final comments? Yeah, I would sort of agree that it starts with awareness and just recognizing that the status quo is not working for large portions of our population. And so none of us should feel comfortable, whether we're in there or out of there, this is not working for a number of people. And so really kind of calling it out when you see it, recognizing it, understanding when practices are predatory or inherently unfair and doing what you can within your own sphere of influence to undo that. And I think we all have a role to play. So whether it's in our individual decision-making, educating someone uh, close to us, or uh, whether we're a decision maker and we can actually make large changes within our within the systems that we influence, I think it does start with sort of that recognition of some of these imbalances that have occurred, and that we all have a role to play in helping to correct that. Well, thank you. Uh, on behalf of the Commonwealth Club of California and our audience, I'd like to thank uh, 
Dr. Anand Shah, uh, uh, MD, President of Social Health at Kaiser Permanente, Dr. Noha Abalata, MD, Founder and CEO of Ruth's Community Health Center, and Sorel Roberson, who's on his way to getting his PhD at UC Berkeley and the founder of Jubilee. Uh, I'd like to thank our audience for joining us today. You know, for 118 years, the Commonwealth Club of California has supported and delivered programming such as this, enlightened discussion. And I think these types of programs actually are a way of addressing some of these inequalities in the United States. So I encourage you to consider becoming a member of the Commonwealth Club for a mere $10 a month. It allows you to access many of these programs and support the good work that we do. We definitely need civilized and open debate in the current environment, and I'm happy to support it. And I'd like to thank all of you, our audience, for attending today. Please go to www.commonwealthclub.org and look at the amazing programming that is designed to address all the issues that our society is struggling with uh, at the moment. So without further ado, I thank our panelists. I wish you all a good day. Take care and bye for now. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.